everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with my friend Mike Sielski, the author of a remarkable new book, The Rise, Kobe Bryant, and the Pursuit of Immortality, published by St. Martin Press this week. Mike, congrats on the book. How are you, man? I'm great, Woj. Thank you so much. It is uh, really cool to be with you. Um, and I want to shout out that um, one of the best decisions I've made in my personal and professional lives is, is stalking you at the 2002 U.S. Open at Beth Page Black to say hello. <laughs> um, and uh, you've been a good friend for a long time, and I really appreciate this. No, of course, Mike. So have you. And, and this, is, uh, this is a remarkable book and a book about a time and a place in Kobe Bryant's life that, in a life that has been well chronicled, the time in which Kobe came from Italy, the son of Joe Bryant, a professional basketball player, an NBA player, a European player, and then moves into the suburbs of Philly, and that is where the setting for the rise. Mike, what pulled you to the book? And kind of walk me through your decision to tell the story of Kobe Bryant at Lower Marion High School, you know, in these formative years between Europe as a teenager and then going into the NBA draft at 17 years old. So after Kobe died uh, in January of 2020, um, I ended up writing a lot of columns about him for the Philadelphia Inquirer, where I'm a full-time columnist. And um, the more I delved into his life, and I had known people who had known him back when he was at Lower Marion, particularly his coach, Greg Downer, and uh, a friend of Kobe's at the time named Jeremy Treatman, who was an assistant coach and kind of a the media liaison for the Lower Marion basketball program. He got very close with Kobe back then. And the more I talked to those guys and, and revisited Kobe's life back then, um, the more I thought, you know, in our little bubble of the Philadelphia area, the story of Kobe at Lower Marion is really well known. But beyond that, it's not as well known, right? Like the idea seems to be that because he ended up in the NBA at age 17, it was almost like he grew up with everybody around the country and around the world. Um, and people just kind of associated him with Los Angeles and the Lakers from that point forward. And I knew from living in the Philly area, from writing about it and covering it, that there was this other story, this kind of origin story that happened before he even ended up with the Lakers. Um, his team had won a state championship after not being very good. As you said, his time in Europe and you know, who he was in this environment of this suburban Philly area um, that that he kind of came out of. And so I wanted to do his origin story. I wanted to kind of, I felt like if I told the story the right way, I could show how the rest of his life kind of played out, that you could see everything about the man and the figure he became in those early years. Part of what really, Mike, kind of instructs the story and the period are a collection of audio tapes that came into your hands 25 years after they were taped. Well, you mentioned Jeremy Treatment, the uh, assistant coach slash media liaison at Lower Marion. Tell me about getting those tapes and then what they did to sort of help you understand Kobe's state of mind at that time, how he felt about things and people in the world, and, and sort of the discovery of those audio tapes that are a big part of, of the rise. Sure. So I'm going to condense what's a really long story. So Jeremy and Kobe were so close in 1996 and 1997 that they tried to collaborate on a book together. Jeremy wanted to write 
kind of a memoir of Kobe. He was going to call it, call it my freshman year in the NBA. So they sat down for this series of interviews um, that Jeremy recorded on an old-fashioned micro cassette recorder and that he, tra he transcribed some of them. So unfortunately, the, the book never came off. It, it didn't work out. Just wasn't, it was bad timing. So Jeremy put the transcripts away and threw the kind of threw the tapes into a box and forgot about them for a long time. So when I approached him about doing this book, um, he gave me the transcripts of what he had of what he had from those tapes, but he didn't have the tapes initially. So this was in March of 2020. So I'm going through and doing my research and writing, and I've got a, a deadline of March 2021 to finish the manuscript. And three days before Christmas. December 22nd, 2020, I get a phone call at 830 at night and it's Jeremy and he lives in a townhouse in Philadelphia. And he says he was moving to Boca Raton. So he was packing up and cleaning up his townhouse. And he says, Mike, I was cleaning out my garage and I found the tapes. I'm like, oh my God, I, I almost dropped the phone. And the next morning I put my mask on against COVID and I drove over to his townhouse and we go in his garage and in a box on a shelf, he pulls out this giant Ziploc bag full of these micro cassettes that nobody has heard in 25 years. And he hands them over to me. And for the next month or two, I spent most of my time listening to them. And what was great about them, as you can imagine, is they captured the thoughts of a 17, 18, 19 year old Kobe Bryant in the moment. So I didn't have to rely on this Sports Illustrated article or that book or that interview that had been recorded from back then. I had his thoughts. You know, what 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 was it like for him to lead Lower Marion to the state championship? What did he think of Del Harris, his first coach in the NBA? What was the connection and closeness like between him and his family? I had his thoughts on those topics. And I could weave that into the narrative with the confidence knowing that the way I wrote it was the way Kobe really thought. And that really added texture and detail um, and really deepened the narrative, I think. You had written a lot about Kobe and Lower Marion, Greg Downer, who Greg Downer to me is always who's the coach at Lower Marion. And you write in the book he put together when Kobe was coming into high school, he kind of beefed up his coaching staff to prepare for what he knew was going to be this very unique once in a lifetime player at a suburban Philly high school. If you look at the arc of Kobe's life, especially during his playing career, it, it changed a little bit. Kobe softened in the last, I would say, the last two years of his career and then into his retirement before he passed. But there were a lot of people who had been very important parts of his life at different points were kind of exiled. Like people kind of came and went in Kobe's life and there were different falling outs and that included in his own family for a period of time. What was always really interesting to me, never with Greg Downer, his high school coach, right? That yep. relationship to me was always very interesting because it seemed to me that it was untouched, unlike many other relationships Kobe had. You are 100% right about that. And you're 100% right, Woj, about how unique it was. Um, and I think the best way to put it is that, and this is going to sound demeaning in a way that I don't mean it to, Greg understood his role in Kobe's life. Um, he knew he was his coach. They were, they were very close. But Kobe, as you know, was incredible at compartmentalizing things and at keeping secrets. So one of the big themes in the book and one of the narrative threads is the fact that uh, how few people knew after the summer of 1995, when he kind of realizes I can make the jump from high school to the NBA, 
how few people knew he was going to do that and how few people he told he was going to do that. He never told Greg Downer explicitly that he was going to jump from Lower Marion High School directly to the NBA. Greg told me that and Kobe acknowledges it in these tapes. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about. Greg dealt with Kobe as a basketball player. Um, he was really the first coach to kind of challenge him to be more of a team player than he had ever been before. You know, the way Joe Bryant had kind of raised him in the game, Joe was an incredible individual player. You know, Kobe always was working on his individual skills and his AAU teams. He wanted to be the guy. He wanted to shoot all the time, those sorts of things. And Greg was the first coach to really kind of challenge him and say, it's great that you can do this, but if you don't do some of these other things, we're, we as Lower Marion High School are not going to win. And Kobe appreciated that. And then throughout the rest of his life, that's who Downer was to Kobe. He was Coach Downer. Come work in my camps. Come deal with me at a basketball level. Uh, be a girl dad with me. You know, Downer has a, a young daughter named Bryn who was very close with Kobe. Um, but I can't think of a better way of putting it than know your role. And, and Downer did. And by doing that, by kind of staying in that lane, he remained a part of Kobe's life from the beginning until the end. The book is The Rise, Kobe Bryant, and the Pursuit of Immortality. You can order it at theriseofkobebook.com. That's Mike's website for the book. That'll take it to anywhere you, you might want to order it. Mike, those years in Lower Marion and coming from Italy, what, what did you learn about who the young man was that was trying to fit in in Lower Marion, try to find an identity as an American kid now who grew up very worldly, um, had a lot of interests and curiosities that maybe most American suburban kids didn't have because of his upbringing overseas. What did you learn about who Kobe was, who he was trying to be when he arrived at Lower Marion and, and started to try to find his place in suburban Philly, essentially? Well, he was a searcher um, from the time he was young. And I think, you know, you put your finger on it when you talk about the experiences in Italy, because when he and the family return to Lower Marion Township for good in the fall of 1991, Kobe's in eighth grade and he kind of falls out of the sky in the school. Like nobody knows who he is. They just hear that, oh, there's this kid now in eighth grade at Balakinwood Middle School whose dad played for the Sixers. And I hear he's a really good basketball player. So Kobe comes into that environment. Lower Marion's got a kind of a unique set of demographics, economically, racially, socially, very diverse. Um, the stereotype is that it's the main line. It's old, old money, a lot of wasps. Um, but there's, you know, a, a sizable contingent of black families. There's a sizable contingent of, Jew, of Jewish families. And Kobe doesn't have the background of any of those people. You know, he's been living in Italy where he can, you know, walk around and sit and have... Uh, you know, coffee with his family and, and people are very open with him. And even though the Bryants are one of the only black families over there, they're accepted and, and kind of in time kind of taken in by the Italian people. And so Kobe drops out of the sky into Lower Marion and he hasn't grown up the way most of the black kids in his school have. He hasn't grown up the way most of the white kids in his school have. He doesn't know what's cool in fashion. He doesn't know what's cool in music. He doesn't know what's cool to watch on TV. He doesn't know any of the catchphrases. Basketball is his way in. And so that's what he uses. And then from there, he's able to find his social groups. And his social groups span the whole 
gamut of kids and, and peer groups at that time. He was taking honors English classes so he could hang out with the smart kids. He was playing basketball so he could hang out with the jocks. He was into rap music. So he had his own group of friends from, from that side of his personality. So by the time he graduates, he's the most important popular figure at the school. And it cuts across all those demographics. And, you know, he becomes this point of pride for a community that had never really rallied around its basketball program before. And it's because of him as the player and also him as the kid. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand slams, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Was there an element or two that, you know, you knew about Kobe and who he'd become and all the, I mean, the one thing about Kobe was, listen, he did everything. He was obsessive. He was a person of extremes and he worked to extremes his sometimes his flaws could be extreme. His goodness could be extreme. Everything with him was bigger. Was there anything that you learned about those formative years in at Lower Marion and around Philadelphia that helped to make sense of who he became and sort of what is really his origin story and the rise? Yeah, I mean, he was every bit as obsessive and extreme as a high school kid um, as he was throughout his twenty years you know, with the Lakers. I'll give you just one example. So when he was 14 or 15, he had this friend um, who he met through his sisters. um, This guy, Anthony Gilbert, who's gone on to write for Slam Magazine and, you know, fairly well known in NBA circles, um, was a student at Temple University. He was a freshman and he got to meet Kobe through Kobe's sister, Sharia. So they became friends and they would drive around to playgrounds and basketball courts in and around Philly and they would play hoops. But when they played, Anthony had two jobs for Kobe. He would rebound for him while Kobe was working on his footwork and shooting threes and dunking and working on his game. And he would scream at Kobe, shout at Kobe. Kobe wanted him to do this. You go to a white school. You're soft. You're not black enough to play in the public league. And Kobe wanted him to do this because he felt like it was going to prepare him for what was to come later in his high school career and in his mind, eventually in his NBA career. He was already kind of hearing these things. So he wanted to kind of gird himself emotionally for what he was going to encounter. I mean, and I think about just that scene and I think back to me being a 15 year old kid, like I just, I was happy to have a girl talk to me when I was 15 or happy to play pickup ball. And, and this, this guy is getting himself ready at that age in a realistic manner for what's to come down the pike as an NBA star or, as the best high school basketball player in Pennsylvania. So those extremes were always there. Another quick anecdote. He had a really good friend, a guy named Matt Matkoff, who wasn't nearly the basketball star or player that Kobe was, but they were tight throughout their, from eighth grade through senior year of high school. And it gets to be senior year. 
And the coaches at Lower Marion are talking that Matt Coff isn't going to make the team. You know, we may have to cut this guy. And Greg Downer says to one of his assistant coaches, what am I going to do? This is Kobe's best friend. Can I cut Kobe's best friend from the team? And the assistant coach, Mike Egan, says, don't worry about it. If you cut him, it won't matter. Kobe won't notice for two weeks. So as it, as it turns out, Matt Coff decides not to play basketball that year. Um, he stops coming to tryouts. And the coaches don't say anything. And two weeks go by, and Kobe turns around one day at practice and says, hey, where's Matt Coff? So that, that speaks to the tunnel vision that he had when it came to basketball and just about every aspect of his life. Mike, the relationship between Kobe and his parents became a complex one at different times in his adult life. What was the relationship like with Kobe and uh, certainly his dad, Joe, who, as you said, you know, very good player for the Sixers and played in Europe and obviously moved the family back to the States the relationship with them in those years it was very close. Um, there was nobody in basketball who Kobe admired more than his dad. And what was interesting about talking to people around the family at the time. And, um, you know, the, the, the one person I spoke to within the family, John Cox, Kobe's cousin, they were, it was almost like Kobe's younger brother, um, was that how much Joe's career and his experiences in the NBA informed Co Kobe as motivation, right? Kobe felt like he wanted to, in some ways, um, redeem the Bryant good name when it came to basketball. Joe played eight years in the NBA, and Joe was an incredibly talented player. He was six foot nine. He could dribble. He could move. He could shoot. He was, in some ways, kind of magic before magic. But he kept getting kind of like square peg round hole treatment from coaches in his mind. And he was also a bit of a free spirit and a ne'er do well, and you know didn't have the the day-to-day, hour-to-hour intensity that Kobe ended up having. So when Kobe gets involved in basketball, he wants to kind of prove to people, hey, my dad was great, and I'm going to show you how great my dad was by being an even greater player. And, you know, Joe was his his basketball tutor. Um, you know, they were very close. If, if Kobe would lose his cool during a game, Joe would whisper something in his ear in Italian or shout something in Italian from the stands. Um, and then you have Pam, his mom, who really brought that intense aspect to Kobe's personality. She ran the household, um, you know, was raised a devout Catholic, raised her kids Catholic. Um, you know, Joe and Pam indulged Kobe in basketball, but were kind of disciplinarians and everything else. And so you get those two sides of their personalities coming together and who Kobe was. Mike, the decision for Kobe to make the jump to the NBA. The one thing that happened in between that was Joe went to work at LaSalle, your alma mater, and I know the great what-if of LaSalle <laughs> basketball among many what-ifs, but none bigger than what would a year of a season of Kobe Bryant looked like in the MAC, right? Were they in the MAC in those days? They were in the, the Midwestern Collegiate Midwestern, Conference. Oh, that sort of transition. Lost yeah, making the transition to the Atlantic 10. The Atlantic, so that was like that lost period of yes. LaSalle basketball. What are we doing in this league, right? Exactly. Type, yeah. Speedy Morris was the coach, at, legendary coach at LaSalle, great high school coach at Philly, and, and you know, great coach at LaSalle. You know, Lionel Simmons and uh, Tim Legler, you know, some great teams there. And hires Joe Bryan as an assistant coach at LaSalle, right, with the understanding that, that Kobe's might, going to come. Yeah, we might get Kobe. You know, let's let's do it. Was that ever going to happen? 
There was a time where it might have. Um, this is one of these, this is one of the reasons I wanted to include this narrative and this storyline in the book was because people forget, I think, Woj, how relevant it was from like 1993 to 96 and how much discussion there was. So there was a time when Kobe was a sophomore and junior where he was really thinking about it. And Joe was an assistant coach at LaSalle at the time. And he was kind of having these, I don't know if you want to call them delusions of grandeur or pie in the sky kind of thoughts that if things don't go well under Speedy and I've got Kobe, maybe they'll fire, maybe the university will fire Speedy and hire me and I'll create like the Fab Five Part Two. Well, I'll bring in all these other players who Kobe has met through the AAU you know, scene around the country, people like Rip Hamilton, uh, people like Lester Earl and uh, Shalene Holloway and, you know, all these guys. And we'll bring, we'll come together at LaSalle for one year or two years and it'll be great. Well, that kind of goes away over time because A, the more Kobe sees of Speedy Morris, the more he realizes like, if, if my dad isn't the head coach here, I don't want to come play for Speedy. And then the summer of 1995, which I know you've talked with Jerry Stackhouse about, was really a turning point uh, for Kobe. That's the summer where John Lucas, who was the head coach of the Sixers at the time, invites him to come work out and scrimmage and play pickup with the Sixers during that summer. And so at St. Joseph's Fieldhouse and at Episcopal Academy, it's all these Sixers players, local college players, and Kobe. And Kobe is holding his own against Jerry Stackhouse and Rick Mahorn and Sean Bradley and Sharon Wright. And all these college guys, and that convinces him that you know what I don't know, forget LaSalle, forget even Duke or North Carolina. I can make the jump. I can do this. Um, and so once that happens, that's it. Put LaSalle, put all the other places out the window. And what's interesting to look back at that time though is to to read the coverage of his senior year and how much mystery, quote unquote, was still around it because he was so secretive. He really didn't let on that he, he didn't mind letting people think that he might still go to LaSalle um, because he was guarding that secret so closely and, and didn't want it out that he was going to go to the NBA. The tapes that you had from Kobe, Mike, took you into the, the very beginnings of his NBA career with the Lakers, his rookie year. What did you learn about where Kobe's head was? what his feelings were about the very beginning as a teenager playing for the Lakers. Well, number one, he hated his first coach, Del Harris, <laughs> um, which is in a way ironic because Del coached Joe Bryant in Houston with the Rockets in Joe's last season in the NBA in 1982-83. So you'd have thought they might have had a point of connection and bonded and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you know, Harris used to scream at him during games in the preseason, the regular season, you're dribbling too much, you're doing too much high school stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And Kobe is on these tapes. Just let me just put it this way, expressing his displeasure with Del Harris and how he's treated, uh, how he's treating Kobe. And it speaks to where Kobe thought he was as a 17, 18 year old kid on a team with Shaquille O'Neal and Cedric Sabalos and Nick Van Exel. Um, you know, he thought he should be the star of that team at that time. Um, there's one little um, really cool nugget that I love from right after Kobe ends up with the Lakers at the 96 draft, after they make the trade, he's talking with Arn Tellum, his agent at the time. And Tellum's kind of quizzing him about guys around the league. You know, how are you going to handle this guy, that guy, blah, blah, blah. And 
Kobe, of course, had played in, you know, summer leagues and AAU and stuff with players all around the Philadelphia area, especially from the Philadelphia Catholic League. Okay. So Tom says to him, you know, John Stockton, how are you going to handle John Stockton? Now, John Stockton at this time had already been the point guard in the dream team. And he's about to take the, he and Carl Malone are about to take the Utah Jazz to back-to-back finals. And Kobe says, yeah, I mean, I played against guys in the Philly Catholic League. I can handle John Stockton. <laughs> and, and the implication, of course, is that I've played against short white guys in the Philadelphia Catholic League at schools like Monsignor Bonner High School. So therefore, I know how to handle, you know, maybe one of the two or three best point guards in NBA history. <laughs> so and, and tell him is just aghast at this. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but that's where he was. He thought. He came in thinking, you know, Shaquille and I, you know, Shaquille's like my brother and we're going to win four or five NBA championships and this will be great. Well, you're exactly right about Kobe and Dell Harris, especially the early time. I remember, I think it was Kobe's first exhibition game, preseason game. It, maybe it was a second. Maybe they had played one in training camp in Hawaii. But as I remember, I thought it was his first preseason game, his rookie year. I was working in Fresno then and the Lakers came in and played at Selland Arena in Fresno, where Fresno State would play. And they would travel, play in different places in the state of California. There were Laker fans everywhere. And I remember sitting courtside for Kobe. Again, I thought it was his first exhibition. Maybe it was his second. But I can, I can just, I'm sitting right by the Laker bench, and Del Harris screaming at him, stop dribbling the effing ball. You're not in high school anymore. This isn't high school. Pass the f***ing ball. Um... And uh, Kobe was uh, passing them. Yeah, defiant, <laughs> defiant to say the least from the, the very beginning. Uh, delving in to do this book, you had, like you said, it, in your role at the Inquirer and, and, and writing columns in Philly, you had written a lot about Kobe. You had written a lot about those years. Was it Kobe's passing that pushed you to, I want to tell this story about this time and place had you thought about running that book prior to kobe's passing well jeremy and i jeremy treatment and i had kicked around this idea back in 2009 um and we were going to frame it not as his origin story but just as um his senior year kobe's senior year um you know a, a book about lebron james and his senior year at saint vincent's had just come out and we thought this would be a decent idea and as it turned out, we couldn't do the book. I got a new job and had to relocate. So we scuttled that project. But once Kobe died, I mean, it was obvious. His his life took on this greater resonance um, around the world, really. Um, and, and as you said earlier, he had softened in his recent in, in recent years and had become kind of this mentor figure around the NBA and in some ways around the country, um, kind of people looking to him for advice and insight and the Mamba mentality and all of that stuff. So, so when he died, um, you know, I really wanted to, you know, it just, it kind of hit me. Greg Downer went out to uh, LA for Kobe's memorial service and on the plane ride back wrote thoughts that he kind of turned into an essay that he gave to me and that, I, that we kind of reworked and it ran as an essay in the Philadelphia Inquirer. And that was really the inspiration. I thought, you know, there's a, there's a bigger story here. If I do this right, I can have everybody who's familiar with Kobe, even in a kind of tangential way, read a book about his early life and get everything that came after that, the good, the bad, the complex. And, and I want to make clear, like, you know, this is not a, 
isn't Kobe Bryant the greatest person in the history of people? This is a honest and detailed story, I hope, about his early life. And so that w- it, his death was the inspiration. I'd be lying to say otherwise, but I did feel like the time in some ways was right to be able to tell this story in this way. The book is The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality, The Rise of Kobe Book. Dot com. The author, uh, Mike Sealski. Mike, excited for you, excited for the release of this book. Uh, one last thing, and, and people saw the excerpt of this in Sports Illustrated this week. The way in which Kobe's death impacted, certainly, I'm in L.A. right now taping this. I'm down at L.A. Live where people will remember you know, what became a very public memorial here. Um, his passing, what was the resonance of Kobe's passing in Philly, in Lower Marion? You described that in um, tremendous detail, how it hit his home, his American hometown and community. It's a really interesting dynamic, Woj, because the people who knew him at Lower Marion don't know him first and foremost as Kobe Bryant basketball immortal. They know him first and foremost and remember him first and foremost as Kobe Bryant who sat next to me in English class. Kobe Bryant who sat next to me on the team bus and every time the bus would go over a bridge and a body of water or river, he would white knuckle the seat because he was a little scared. Um, you know, Kobe who liked rap music and goofed off and and you know, used to play every drill at every practice for Lower Marion like his life depended on it. And so when he died, a part of them and their childhoods went away. And I think that 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 to me was an intriguing aspect of his story, one that hasn't probably gotten the attention it it, it merited. And so, um, yeah, it was different here in a lot of ways. And, and just from a Philly standpoint, you know, Kobe was not well liked in Philadelphia for a long time because of the dynamic between is he from the city or is he not from the city? You know, he he's not really from Philly. He People think he's from Philly, but he's not. And the Lakers played the Sixers in the 2001 finals. And he said he was going to cut our hearts out and blah, blah, blah. And all of that was kind of based around the fact that Kobe would have been the perfect athlete to play in Philadelphia. If he had played here, he would have been a god forever. And so... There's a, you know, I wanted to explore those aspects in the book. Those dynamics to me were just fascinating. I think this book is headed for the bestseller list. Listen, people are going to learn a lot about Kobe, which is not easy to do about an athlete and really a part of American culture, pop culture. He obviously transcends basketball. It is difficult to unearth and tell stories and put context on a life that hasn't already been shared You've done it with The Rise, Mike. The Rise, Kobe Bryant, and the Pursuit of Immortality, St. Martin's Press. It's available everywhere now, theriseofkobebook.com. You can go there, get it online. Mike, good luck with the release of the book. I'm proud of you. I'm happy for you, and I appreciate you jumping in and taking time to talk about it. Woj, thank you so much. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, Mike Sealski, the author of The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit 
of immortality. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also listen to the Low Post with Zach Lowe, the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst, and the Adam Schefter Podcast with Adam Schefter. We'll catch you next time. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.